Welcome to the Azure Security Podcast, where we discuss topics relating to security, privacy, reliability, and compliance on the Microsoft Cloud Platform. Hey, everybody. Welcome to episode number 30. Uh, this week, it's myself, Gladys, and Sarah. Uh, Mark is just absolutely slammed, um, so we'll have to listen to his news next week. We also have a guest. We have Pete Bryan. He's a senior software engineer in the Microsoft Threat Intelligence Center, and he's here to talk about everything you need to know about Mystic. But before we get on to Pete, uh, let's take a look at the news. Uh, Gladys, why don't you kick things off? Yeah, I wanted to uh, mention that uh, my co-workers, David Sanchez Rodriguez, uh, Javier Soriano, Marcelo Dirolio, and myself have uh, recorded the first Azure Security Podcast in Spanish. We have published it. Currently, we are recording in a monthly basis, but uh, we expect uh, to change to more often depending the, of the outreach. Thank you, Michael, uh, for helping us uh, get all this set up. Uh, it takes a little bit of learning, but uh, we are doing it now. So. And it has been uh, well-received based on Twitter and LinkedIn comments that we're seeing. At the end of the, this month, we will be interviewing uh, Roberto Rodriguez uh, uh, about his similar creation. So be in the lookout for those. From the cloud capability perspective, I'm really excited about a conditional access filtering that has been added in preview for um, Azure AD. Basically, this gives the ability of filtering for device as condition. For example, one can restrict access to a privileged access workstation or a, or a secure access work, workstation. Sometimes in our documentation is uh, referred as PO or SO. Uh, for those of you not familiar with what PO or SO are, basically the, they are computers that are really hardened limited applications. Uh, we recommend uh, not to do email or regular web browsing. So it, it's only used for administration. Uh, so, so you are able to connect to cloud uh, administration or, or on-prem uh, application for administration. To configure this, uh, basically all you have to do is uh, go to Azure AD conditional access under the um, authentication uh, context. The last thing that I wanted to talk uh, about is um, two years ago, Microsoft launched uh, Windows Virtual Desktop. Uh, with the pandemic, Microsoft has seen the need uh, to support an evolving set of uh, remote and hybrid work scenarios. So uh, to support this uh, broader vision, we are changing the rebranding of uh, Windows Virtual Desktop to Azure Virtual Desktop. So you're gonna start seeing a lot of documentation referring to Windows uh, uh, Virtual Desktop as Azure Virtual Desktop. Cool, so some of the news I have, um, I'll start with Azure Backup. So anyone using the Azure Backup service um, and any resources that are using the Microsoft Azure Recovery Services or the Mars agent, you need to be using TLS 1.2 or above. Um, we will be stopping using TLS 1.0 and 1.1 as of the 1st of September 2021. So um, at the day we're recording this, that is June, July, August, September, that's um, three, three and a half months away. So and I know that in IT terms, um, in production IT terms, that's not necessarily a long time if you have to go through a change board and stuff. So definitely get onto that if you're using that. 
Secondly, let's talk about my favorite baby, Azure Sentinel. Just a quick one this time. I, I will actually not talk about it too much, but we have made some changes to the pricing of Sentinel, and this is pretty cool because it means um, it should be cheaper for folks. Now, when I say cheaper, I'm not saying we've suddenly dropped the price, but couple of things to know. Um, if you capacity res reservations are now called commitment tiers because we like to change names. Uh, but uh, with the commitment tiers, we now have higher uh, commitment tiers. So um, if you're familiar with them, you'll know that we used to go up to five, we went from 100 gig a day up to 500 gig a day. And now we are also doing one terabyte a day, two terabytes a day, five terabytes a day. So you can actually just configure that commitment here in the UI without having to uh, talk to a Microsoft person. The other thing that's really, really cool is the way that we bill for data ingestion over the commitment tier. So if you're, say, on a what used to happen was if you were on, say, a 100 gig a day commitment tier and you went over 100 gigabytes a day, you would pay the pay as you go rate for Azure Sentinel. Now what you'll do if you go over your commitment tier, you will just pay the effective rate. So because each commitment tier has a discount, you can tell I'm a tech person and not a salesperson because I am appalling at explaining this. But basically, it means it's cheaper. We'll put the link in the show notes. Go check it out. Um, it is, I think, a big improvement because previously, if you went over your commitment tier, you would get charged for that overage quite a bit more. So it's going to be cheaper now, which is lovely. Uh, and then we've got for Azure Security Center, a couple of things to talk about there. Um, we've got, uh, it's got some new recommendations for hardening Kubernetes clusters. Um, so if you're using Kubernetes, we're going to have some more hygiene recommendations, which is great. And there's going to be some new recommendations to enable trusted launch capabilities. And in preview then for GA, because Azure Security Center is pretty much as busy as Azure Sentinel, I reckon. It's things that have gone GA that you may have already seen. We've got Azure Defender for DNS and Azure Defender for Resource Manager and now GA. Um, Azure Defender for Open Source Relational Databases is GA. Uh, we've got some new alerts in Defender for Resource Manager. And there's also um, the SQL data classification recommendation severity has changed and that's all GA too. And then the last thing that I wanted to talk about, again, Security Center, this is public preview, but this is very cool, so it gets to be separate, is that um, Azure Security Center now integrates with GitHub Actions. So if you're using GitHub Actions, um, they are a way of doing automation within your GitHub repo. Um, I have had some experience with them. Um, I'm a bit of a GitHub noob, but I have had some experience trying to post automated messages in the Sentinel repo. So I, I've done a tiny bit with this. Uh, it's very, very cool because what it means is that um, you can incorporate security and compliance into your CI/CD pipeline and it will help developers identify issues faster. So definitely go check that out if you're using um, if you're using a GitHub repo for your code. Over to you, Michael. That's all my news. Uh, one of the first items that I have is the fact that we now have uh, SEC DevOps kind of practice support in GitHub and Azure. Uh, so, for example, you know if you're using Git, uh, GitHub uh, as your as your as your main pipeline, 
then uh, we can actually use uh, tooling that we have now, for example, as a security center in collaboration with containers, we can provide that sort of end-to-end -end collaborative view and tooling to help you secure you know, the products that come out of your pipelines. That's really great to see. Uh, the next one is uh, there is now the general availability for key rotation and expiration policies for Azure storage. So before I get stuck into this, I need to explain what the keys are here. These are not encryption keys. These are not cryptographic keys. This is the keys that are used as essentially the access token that you use to access um, the storage account. And if you're not familiar, you can use two major ways of accessing storage accounts, either through some kind of token um, or you can use uh, an, you know, using AAD identities. Uh, we talked uh, the last podcast. We talked about there's the ability now using policy to disable the use of keys, and uh, so only using um, AAD accounts. Uh, that's at the data plane. Well, if you need to use uh, access keys, for example, um, you know secure secure access tokens, then sometimes you may want to rotate those on a regular basis. Well, now you can put policy in place to require a rotation policy and expiration policies uh, for those access keys. So, you know, some people still want to use access keys. I totally understand that. But this is just giving you more control over making sure that those things are rotated on a regular basis. Uh, the next one is we now have the ability, said this in public preview, to have identity-based connections in Azure functions using uh, Azure triggers, like triggers on various, various services. Uh, this applies right now to Azure Blob, Azure Queue, uh, Event Hub, Service Bus, and Event Grid. And basically, kind of what it does is it now lets you leverage an identity instead of a connection string when these services are talking to each other. As you're probably all well aware, you know, storing a secret is always a painfully difficult thing to do. And more importantly, if it's compromised, then you know, the attacker now can impersonate that particular, that particular service. So this uh, gets rid of that problem by using managed identities. So if you set this in set this in place, you can have two services talking to each other just using managed identities to uh, to authenticate against each other. And the last one I have, which uh, I was going to talk about last week, was but I totally forgot about it. Was Cosmos DB now has support for client side encryption using Always Encrypted. So Always Encrypted is a technology that first came out in SQL Server. Um, and it's it's essentially client side encryption. So the keys are actually maintained uh, by the clients. Uh, SQL Server doesn't know about them, or in this particular example, Cosmos DB doesn't know about them. They're maintained completely at the client. There are certain kinds of data and certain kinds of configurations that will allow you to do queries uh, over that data, even though it's encrypted. And this is the, the, the beauty of, of always encrypted. So that technology is now available in Cosmos DB in preview. Uh, we talked uh, a couple of months ago now about the SDK that's available. It's up on GitHub. Uh, it's the same. It's essentially the same code. So if you're using Cosmos DB, uh, you want some you know, incredibly robust uh, cryptographic control uh, at the data plane, then this is certainly worth looking at. So with that, let's change change tax and let's uh, turn our attention to our guest. Uh, this week we have Pete Bryan. As I mentioned, he's a senior software engineer in the Microsoft Threat Intelligence Center, otherwise known as Mystic. Uh, Pete, welcome to the podcast. Uh, we'd like to spend a couple of moments and kind of explain uh, how long you've been at Microsoft and what you do. Thanks, Michael. And yeah, thanks for having me on. Um, so I work as officially a software engineer at Mystic. Uh, but really, I'm more of a security analyst or researcher. Um, I've worked at, for Mystic for a, a couple of years now. 
and I've been at Microsoft forgetting on for nearly five years now in a in a variety of roles. I, I actually started off as a um, security engineer at Skype back in the day. Um, and then I, I've done some um, kind of customer facing roles before moving into Mystic. Um, but my my background really has always been the kind of defensive side of cyber security. Uh, so socks, instant response, that sort of work. Very cool. So, I mean, I have to ask this pretty straight up question. What is Mystic and what is the role of Mystic within Microsoft and how does it relate to our customers? So Mystic has a number of different missions. As the name suggests, threat intelligence is a core one of those. So what that involves is investigating and tracking the more sophisticated threat actors that are targeting Microsoft and Microsoft customers. These are, these are typically nation-backed groups or advanced e-crime actors. And you might have heard of some of these groups that we track when we talk about them publicly, as we name them after periodic uh, elements. So things like strontium, uh, gold, nobelium, these are all kind of names of threat act groups that, that we track as part of the core threat intelligence mission. And the objective of that mission is to feed into both Microsoft's defender teams, so the teams that protect Microsoft as an organization, but also out to our customers through our security product sets. So the, the intelligence that we gather as part of the, the TI mission feeds into to all of the, the products that our customers use kind of day in, day out. But it's not just that kind of threat intelligence mission that Mystic does. We also have a number of other engineering and R&D roles. So we spend a lot of time and effort researching new attack techniques um, and new defensive techniques and feeding them again into the product groups, into the, the product ecosystem that Microsoft has. Uh, and some of that is providing domain expertise to other groups, some of it is providing kind of core engineering platforms uh, that actually do some of this detection as well. We also try and engage with the community more broadly. So as part of the, the Threat Intel mission, we have a lot of industry partners who we work very closely with in the threat actor tracking with information sharing and so on. Uh, but we also try and share out through open source projects and openly in the community. So. One of the, the kind of big open source projects we have is Mystic Pi, which is, is one I work on. Uh, but there, there's others in there as well. Uh, in the new section, Gladys mentioned Simuland, which was created by uh, Roberto Rodriguez, who's my, my colleague at Mystic. Uh, and there's a number of other areas where we're just trying to contribute back to improve the, the security ecosystem like for Microsoft customers, but also just more generally. Can you explain uh, a little bit about Mystic Pi? Sure. So, Mystic Pi is kind of uh, very much my baby. I could talk about it all day because it's something I've worked on for, for the last couple of years now. Um, and what it is, is a set of Python tools to support threat intelligence analysts and threat hunters. Most of it is derived from expertise and experience in-house in Mystic. And we actually have a, a very similar tool set internally um, that is it has a different name and it's kind of geared towards our specific internal processes, but it has a lot of the same capabilities. Uh, and the idea really is to provide a easy and simple way for security analysts and threat hunters to use Python and primarily Jupyter notebooks to conduct this um, investigation work. 
so it has tools to help you kind of collect data, analyze data, visualize data, and um, kind of really improve your kind of workflow speed and capabilities uh, based off this experience we have within within Microsoft and specifically within Mystic. So one of the, the big benefits of doing this in Python and creating a Python-based tool is that it also opens up a integration to the wider Python ecosystem. All of the other capabilities people have built out there, partly for security, but more really for other projects. So if you think about the data science and ML community, they're heavily invested in Python and there are loads of great Python tools out there, such as things like scikit-learn that make ML a lot easier to, to conduct. And uh, they're all written in Python. So having a, a security tool set written in Python as well means we can kind of integrate those two sides of the, the Python ecosystem for, for defenders as well. I'm always fascinated by the kind of the human element of tools like this and people's journey, you know, as, as things change, as technology shifts and so on. And obviously one of the biggest changes over the last decade has been the use of AI and ML. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, actually, the uh, end of April, we had Sharon Shah on who does the AI and ML for Azure Sentinel. And she briefly talked about her journey as a security professional, sort of through the AI and machine learning landscape. Could you share with our listeners sort of your kind of journey, like what things you've learned along the way as a security person learning AI and ML? A big thing with security, particularly from a threat hunting, threat intelligence perspective, is it's really just a data problem. You need to collect your data, format the data, and then find the interesting things in it. And that's fundamentally not that different from what data scientists do. Um, and having kind of talked to other data scientists and particularly working at Microsoft, where we've got teams of great data scientists doing other things, being able to collaborate with them has shown me kind of how powerful ML and AI capabilities can be for threat hunting, even when they're potentially quite basic or at least from a data scientist view, they'd be seen as basic. Um, and Python just makes them so accessible. It's uh, it's provided me a way of really easily learning and leveraging some, some capabilities that really help. If you think about kind of what our data scientists do internally, they spend a lot of time creating really cool, very granular data, um, data models and machine learning algorithms that help kind of find specific events in a, a whole stack of data. Uh, but for me, what I can do is kind of take some of their, their learnings at a basic level and apply it in threat hunting to do things that don't have to be anywhere near as sophisticated to be valuable. So if I've got a big set of data, if I can create an uh, ML model, a simple ML model using some of the, the pre-built capabilities in something like scikit-learn, just to cut that data set down to 10% of what it was originally, that's a huge help to me. Um, and so having those, those capabilities and those tools e easily available to me as a security person through, through Python and just a few lines of code um, is really powerful. And it, it means that I can learn a lot about um, ML as I go. And I'm, I'm far from an expert. I, we work pretty closely with some, some data science, data science experts and to be honest, a lot of the maths they talk about goes over my head, but I can understand enough and leverage enough um, to to make it useful to me as a, a threat hunter. Cool. So, Pete, I get asked, and I'm going to let you talk about it rather than me, but I get asked, 
why do I need Sentinel if um, Mystic Pie can do all these things? Like, how how do they work together? Do they complement each other, etc.? Because I know not everyone is clear on how, how those two might coexist. I guess the first thing to say is is Mystic Pie is built to work with Sentinel, but it's not Sentinel specific. Uh, it has capabilities to work with other data sources. Um, it hooks up with things like Splunk, um, hooks up with MDE, it hooks up with kind of local data you might have. Um, but it's also not a replacement for any of those tools, really. Um, it It's focused more on uh, the, the less structured parts of the security process. So you're not triaging alerts necessarily. It's more the, the experimentation that comes with threat hunting or a particularly complex investigation. Um, and one of the advantages it has is that it takes the power of something like uh, KQL, which we have in Sentinel, and just opens up to, to the, again, pretty much anything you could think of doing in Python. If you think about where Mystic Pi is sitting, it's probably not going to be something that every security analyst is going to use. It is definitely kind of one of the more advanced capabilities in a in a, a tool set. But it it allows you to do things that you maybe could do in Sentinel, but wouldn't necessarily want to do. And I think one of the, the really powerful things about it is its ability to connect to multiple different data sets at once. You can use it and pull data from Sentinel as your starting point, but then also pull data from other other locations and uh, analyze it together without having to then kind of ingest all that data into Sentinel um, and the the kind of storage elements and engineering side that comes with that. Really, it's kind of your your extension out of Sentinel into to other elements. Um, and really, it's kind of your the world's your oyster once you're in Mystic Pi because you're not really constrained by um, by kind of UI or features at that point. The general sort of view I get is, you know, Sentinel is this, this, you know, this big tool, whereas Mystic Pi may be more applicable for some people who want to perhaps a more programmatic access and fiddling around with different settings and so on just to get, you know, certain types of data back. It seems it seems more programmy rather than being a you know an infrastructure tool. Is that a fair comment or or not? Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's also not a a tool that's really built for structure if that makes sense it, it doesn't have integration with like a ticketing system or a a nice process queue that you you get with the the instant experience in sentinel say so there are scenarios where you would definitely kind of you need that structure such as triaging alerts that you you're just not going to have in in mystic pi because that's not really what it's intended for so can you give an example of how mystic pi has been used uh in the wild and perhaps you know save some of our customers some time Sure. So along with Mystic Pi, we've also created a, a number of Jupyter notebooks that go with uh, Sentinel and use Mystic Pi to kind of um, allow people to kind of do specific things. Uh, and one that we created last year that I think is a good example is is one that was looking at COVID-19 themed threats. And we, we wrote this back in, I think, March or April last year, when we were seeing a huge volume of covid themed phishing attacks and other kind of um influence type operations and rather than just kind of like release a, a feed of iocs that we are seeing that would have kind of grown on a exponential basis it made a lot more sense to create a notebook using mystic pi that allowed people to to analyze this stuff themselves so the 
the notebook kind of collects various data sets from from Sentinel primarily, and then looks in them for COVID themed elements, domain names, document names, things like that, and then uses um, a number of the features of Mystic Pi to help highlight which of those might be something worth investigating a bit further. So we can look them up in threat intelligence feeds, we can get details on domains and when they were registered, are they something that was just kind of set up 10 minutes ago or, or has this been around for a couple of years? Um, what's the reputation of this? Um, again, just kind of allowing us to take that core data that you've got in Sentinel and enhance it with all of these external data feeds to, to help you kind of drill in and investigate this data. And I think that's really important, right? I mean, you've got this massive amount of data and you're essentially using Mystic Pi and it's AI and ML to whittle it down to some smaller data set that has a higher likelihood of being real attack data. Absolutely. And you can't necessarily get it down to, um, to a, something that has zero false positives. But as I was saying before, you, as a threat hunter, you don't need to do that necessarily. If you can just cut it down to a, a manageable level that you can go and investigate a bit further, that's a huge win. From the looks of it, uh, there's a, lo a lot of lessons learned uh, that can be gathered from the work that Mystic does. Does Mystic publish data on attack or threat actors? Yes, yeah, so we do fairly regularly now. We, we publish things uh, publicly and also via the, the Microsoft security tooling. So you'll see our public blogs. We've recently posted ones about the, the groups Nobelium and Hafnium. Uh, and these go into detail about the, the techniques and the, the malware that we've seen those threat actors use. But it's not just those public elements. We also um, have detections and reports available via things like uh, Defender for Endpoint. So if if you are targeted by one of these groups, you will get access to reporting about those groups uh, through the portal where you can learn a bit more about them, kind of what their history is, what their typical targeting pattern is, uh, TTPs that might be associated with them. And we, we also extend this out to, to other customers we have. So where we're seeing the groups or the threat actors that we're tracking, where we see them targeting customers specifically, where we let those customers know what we've seen, when we've seen it, and, and help them kind of respond to that. So we're using the the intelligence that we're gathering to to kind of feed into uh, customers and the community kind of as much as we can through this. And we're we're always looking to step this up. Kind of the blog uh, cadence has increased over the last year. We're also starting to share threat intelligence data sets more often than we we have done in the past. And uh, really, we're just trying to kind of be as open as possible and publish as much as we can to help people defend themselves against these, these threat actors, but also um, allow other threat intelligence organizations and companies to, to build upon the work we've done and um, expand it using their own visibility. We, we've seen some great recent examples of that where we published a blog about a threat actor and another threat intelligence organization has been able to take the, the information there and build and expand and produce our own blogs with some new information that's based on the, the unique visibility that they might have. So there's real kind of advantage to, to everyone to allowing, allowing this kind of public sharing of, of the work that we do. 
So that leads into a good question about Nobelium. Um, did what did we learn from Nobelium? Oh, I mean, we we learned a lot from Nobelium, and we're still learning from them. Um, I think the last what I don't know six eight months has been uh, a continual learning process from this threat group. Um, there's so many things that they've done that have been kind of interesting and maybe not completely new, but um, used in a, in a in a way that we haven't seen on uh, a scale before that has allowed us to um, focus our research, but also kind of develop new investigative areas. So the way that they, they focused and pivoted from on-premise identity up into the cloud this wasn't necessarily a, a completely new technique. The, the stealing of ADFS key material and minting of SAML tokens had been documented by researchers before and had been used by attackers before, but not on the same kind of scale or sophistication that we saw with Nobelium. Recently, we, uh, we published a blog about the phishing campaign Nobelium's been running for the last few months um, and the, the techniques used there. Again, the techniques weren't completely new or novel, but the way they went about doing this, the TTPs they, they used and the, the methodical approach they took is something that we're, we're learning from. And again, when you're tracking these very sophisticated threat actors, you learn a lot just from the way that they, they approach these um, attacks, how they spend a long time developing and testing capabilities before launching attacks. I think if you look at the supply chain attack Nobelium launched, they they spent years on this, basically, getting access, persisting it, tweaking it, testing it, and then finally exploiting it for their, their end goals. So that kind of timeline and persistence is super, super valuable from a, a defender to learn from and gives us a whole whole wide range of, of data points that we can we can use to improve uh, our own tracking of threat actors, but also the the defenses that go into our products. What about Hafnion? Uh, have we learned anything there? Uh, any particular patterns? So Hafnion was a was a really interesting one, and I think the one of the great things about that was the the cross company approach we took. So Hafnion was a, a threat actor that we had been tracking, who we saw exploiting exchange vulnerabilities. Um, and specifically a, a number of exchange zero days that were disclosed in in March this year. So about the time that we we started seeing them exploit these capabilities and understand what was going on, other parts of Microsoft were also focusing in on, on this. Uh, external security researchers had, exploit, uh, had reported some of these uh, exploits and vulnerabilities to the, the Microsoft Security Response Center. And this meant that we could team up with them and the the exchange group to take that information we had from researchers the threat actor information that we had seen as mystic and uh, the research we'd done internally to create a really good response to that uh, allowing us to have kind of a comprehensive uh, patching and protection capability for customers as well as having detection and threat hunting uh, resources for people to go see if they've been impacted. And that was a really good example, I think, of the threat intelligence mission that Mystic does, enriching and enhancing the, the 
security work that goes on across all of Microsoft, really. I will have to ask about ransomware. Um, there's a lot of talk uh, about it uh, lately, um, and I have heard customers uh, talking why uh, my antivirus couldn't uh, 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 gather it. Can you provide some learnings from there and uh, uh, the overall process ecosystem? Yeah, so obviously ransomware is a is a big problem for the whole industry at the moment, and it's certainly one that Mystic is is focusing on. Um, you might have seen the the recent reports uh, about the FBI responding to the attackers who targeted the Colonial Pipeline here in the US, and uh, they the FBI called out in their their press conference the other day the support that they had had from from Mystic. So. It shows the kind of work we're doing across not just um, Microsoft, but the the wider community to help respond to ransomware and impose some cost on the these ransomware actors. Um, but really, kind of what is interesting about ransomware is the way it's often depicted in the news versus the the kind of personas behind it. So, ransomware is often seen as a malware problem, and it's reported as a malware problem. So again, if we look at Colonial Pipeline, uh, the, the report was about DarkSide. And really, DarkSide is a, a type of ransomware. It's the, the software that's involved in it. But behind DarkSide, there's a whole number of personas and actors that we can track and look at here. Um, Generally, with these ransomware groups, it breaks down into to kind of three parts. You've got the, the people who create the ransomware, who do the coding. You've got the, the sellers, effectively. So these are the people that um, advertise these things on the dark web, that provide uh, people access for a fee, and kind of maintain the infrastructure behind it. And then you've got the, the operators at the end. So these are the people who buy access to the, the ransomware platform, and then will will deploy it at a victim and be that kind of initial interaction point with the victim demanding the ransom. So you've got all these different elements that you need to, to contend with here. And there's a number of places where you can learn and track from them. Um, and I think part of the problem we have with ransomware is we see it as a, as a malware problem because we talk about it as a malware. Whereas really, you've got to think of it much more broadly than that. You've got to have an uh, approach that thinks about it a lot more holistically, particularly for these really big intrusions. It's not just a case of someone attaching ransomware payload to an email and sending it so it gets deployed. These um, these operators who are who are compromising organizations are are acting like a, a sophisticated threat actor and gaining access through an initial kind of compromise point pivoting around, gaining domain dominance, and then deploying ransomware at the end. So you need to, yes, think about blocking the, the malware aspect of ransomware. But really, if it, you get to that point, that's very late in the, the ransomware kill chain. You need to be looking way earlier at that kind of like initial access, lateral movement. How are you going to detect and stop that? Because that's, that's really uh, the stage you need to be doing it rather than just trying to block the block the ransomware executing on the endpoint. So when we started the interview, you mentioned that Mystic is also involved in research and development. Um, could you give us a, a brief overview of uh, kind of what the research and development looks like? 
Yeah, so R&D in security is one of those kind of never-ending problems is you've always got to uh, kind of keep up with the latest attacks. You've always got to develop detections for the, the latest TTPs that have come out or the, the latest piece of, piece of malware. Um, and obviously doing that kind of churn is part of what we do, but we're also looking at how we can leverage the community to, to kind of take our R&D to the next level. And one of the, the things that we're looking at and my colleague Roberto is really championing is this idea of how can we engage with the security community, and particularly the, the research and offensive security community to build our R&D in at their development stage. So if you think about kind of red team tools, quite often what happens is uh, the these great offensive security researchers will will develop a great new technique build it into a tool to help them and other red teams release that it will then get abused by a malicious actor who will uh, who will kind of compromise a bunch of innocent people using it the defensive security team will then be kind of focused on it and develop detections and and allow people to find it well really we kind of want to we want to skip that whole innocent people getting compromised piece and see if we can work with those offensive security researchers early on to to help them develop the the detection capabilities as they're detect as they're developing the offensive tooling so that when it's released defenders are are already there rather than having to having to wait um and that's kind of a, a big project for us and it's kind of a big bit of work for the community because it it typically hasn't been something the community has done so well, that kind of red versus blue element and coming together. But also the the R&D side on the defender's perspective has been has been limited by things like a lack of good tooling and also just a lack of time. Like SOC teams have a number of kind of objectives and it, it can often be quite um, time time sensitive. So kind of making the time for for this defensive research can be hard. So we're trying to do things like developing frameworks and tool sets that can help these defenders do that research. So Simuland that was mentioned in the news section um, is, is one that uh, Roberto has created to help with this. Um, but also just the work we're trying to do with with these researchers to to get ahead of the game effectively on the, the defensive side of that research and through Roberto's persistence and the work that he's done building the community we're, we're having some great success there and allowing us to kind of work with these researchers to to make sure that we we understand their new techniques and capabilities before they're public and also make sure we've got those protections and defenses built into our products before they're public and and for me that's probably going to be a, a real game changer not in the next week or two, but in the next year or so, if we can kind of really get that process working, I think we're going to we're going to have a tangible difference on the, the security landscape. There's a question we ask all our guests at the very end, and that is if you had one final thought, just one thing for our listeners to, to really hang on to, what would it be? I think a key thing to focus on is keeping keeping perspective on security threats as Threat intelligence practitioners, we quite often like focusing on the really sophisticated elements and talking about them. So a good example would be with Nobelium, all the focus was on their 
long-running supply chain compromise. But really, that was just kind of part of what they did. A lot of the other elements of their attack were the, the kind of techniques and processes that are well known to defenders. And really, by keeping that in, in perspective and focusing on the security basics, people can really do a great job at protecting themselves, even from the most advanced threat actors out there. Things like just making sure you've got MFA enabled, things like you're restricting uh, what you're exposing to the internet, they make a huge difference against not just the, the kind of commodity threats, but against these really advanced threat actors as well. And it might not stop them because they're going to be persistent and find other ways in. But what it does is A, imposes bigger cost on them, and B, gives defenders way more opportunity to detect them. You'll find that even advanced groups will be quite noisy, particularly if you force them to, to kind of try and circumvent good security controls. So really what I'd say is focus on making sure you've got the basics in place, uh, regardless of who your, your threat actor and your threat model is. So with that, let's uh, let's bring the podcast to an end. Pete, thanks so much for joining us this week. Uh, I know we, we all really appreciated it. We also learned a great deal. And uh, hopefully our listeners learned a great deal as well. And uh, to all you listeners out there, thank you so much for joining us this week. Take care of yourself and we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Azure Security Podcast. You can find show notes and other resources at our website, azsecuritypodcast.net. If you have any questions, please find us on Twitter at Azure SecPod. Background music is from ccmixter.com and licensed under the Creative Commons license. <laughs>